Hey, Dr. Koontz, how does one survive? <laughs> uh, I guess it depends on the situation, whether you're talking about you have a horrible situation at work or, you know, you could potentially starve to death in the next two weeks. Those are going to be different uh, situations, obviously, with different solutions, but you're going to survive through some complex of creative thinking and perseverance. So the essential survival manual expert advice for extreme situations by Ken Griffiths, who uh, I read a part of it a while ago and just happened to have the notes. He uh -huh. defines survival as living on after hope is gone. I found that a very helpful way of thinking about survival. And he talks about how the main requirement is courage. That is more people survive when they believe they can than when they don't. Survival is the desire to go on when right. you, you believe you can, even though it doesn't appear right. that you can. So in the context of our listeners then, right? So think about what maybe our average listener is. What is the survival scenario they are having to face right now? Because that's where I think our, our topic for the day will nicely, nicely dovetail in. It, the average listener probably is not at subsistence level or plane crash in winter in the Andes Mountains level yet. Right. right. And hopefully never gets there. But survival is part of the reason that I think this podcast started and part of the reason why many people are realizing many new things about the world because they realized maybe for the first time that the survival of many familiar things is not insured and is in fact very much in doubt. And so they themselves want to survive in an environment which has suddenly become a lot stranger and, and probably more hostile than it was for them before. Right. And part of the hostility would be the proximity of, of others. The tighter, the more cramped the space gets, the, the less of the goods that we need to survive yeah. are right. available to us. And hence then uh, really, I think a, a fascinating catalyst in the conversation does the encroaching surveillance that media puts in our lives show us a fair representation of our actual survival habitat or does it amplify in some sort of like unable by us to be perceived way, either the danger or the safety. So now that I've fallen out of the safety, I was like, wow, it was amplifying the safety there. Right. Am I overestimating the danger? That's also sort of one of the questions. Yeah. And that's a great question because I think that one of the things that people are realizing is that we have actually generally been in and the media has reinforced our sense of being in an extremely low risk environment. So I looked into this, I, I hunted and, you know, Office of Statistics in St. Louis can tell me differently, but I had a list of the number of Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod pastors who had died in the influenza epidemic of 1918 and 1919. <laughs> And you, you know, you have a sense of how many churches there were. It's kind of easily available because I, I live right next to a library of everything you would ever want to know about the Missouri Synod. So yeah, yeah, right. you can look and you can see how many guys were on the roster in 1919. So what proportion of them died? 
And then you compare it to any anecdote I could find, let's say given roughly 6,000 guys active today who have anyone could find any knowledge that they died of COVID-19. And the proportion is not even close. So that's a, that's a population that has increased absolutely a lot over the past 102 years. But the proportion who have died is much lower than it was. Nevertheless, if you look at media reports from 1918 and 1919, and we talked about the Anti-Mask League of San Francisco, but something else that I, I think we mentioned, and, and we should have if we didn't, is how restrictions on life were not nearly so widespread, not nearly so enduring, not even in San Francisco back then as they are today, despite the fact that just in my sample population, and I think you could probably do the same for, you know, 20 somethings in 1919 versus 2021 um, and get similar results. That flu 102 years ago, 103 years ago was just a lot more deadly. Mm -hmm. So what we deal with is an extremely low risk environment in many, many, many respects. But I think that that has a power over us. Any risk, therefore, has a much greater power in the same sense that somebody who never, ever goes outside is probably a lot more scared of trees and, and what the grass is going to do to their skin and getting sunburned than someone who is simply outside every day and acclimated to it. Yeah, the immune system just goes bad. So I think that there is an immune system, obviously both for our body, but I think also for our spirits. And, you know, the, the statement that you're more likely to survive if you believe you're going to is not, I think, magical thinking. I think that our spirits are meant to be strong as well as our bodies and that under conditions of surveillance, which are generally going to be low risk because slaves have to be kept healthy to some degree. Under those low risk conditions, our spirits also suffer as our bodies do when with no risk present in our lives, they are completely unaccustomed to challenges. And so when they face any challenge, they're unprepared. Right. And uh, so the, the weakness having built up in ease in one sense Right. Then can't handle the real when the real comes. This podcast is hunting for the real in a way that we can swallow, that we can yeah. handle it, that we can kind of flex the muscles and not roll over and die. <laughs> and yet, you know, as I think any, most of our listeners will acknowledge, we're the, we're the vast minority right now. So, you know, you mentioned many people are discovering or realizing things about the world or life or where we live. Yeah, I don't know. The casino seems to be humming along just fine still at the moment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. respond to that at all? I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't really answer the other part of your question about is it possible to overestimate danger <laughs> once you realize that that risk is real and could actually be advantageous. And I think it's obviously possible to overestimate danger. On the other hand, not really what we're working on this week, but things certainly to work on in the future would be the vast increase in complexity of financial instruments yeah. since the 1980s. And, and what that is a measure of is not just what our economies in the West are based upon increasingly, which is 
farther and farther and farther away from actual production of anything anyone uses. But it's also a measure of the need to basically squeeze more money out of the casino. And I think that you see this in Biden's infrastructure plan, which is probably going to increase taxation of various kinds, maybe not for everybody, but it probably won't produce a ton of infrastructure. And if you compare that to say 1930s America, where in the middle of the depression, we are putting up enormous things still. I, I actually personally believe, and I can substantiate this in, in other weeks with other topics, I personally believe we're simply not capable Amen. and our casino is not capable of producing the returns that it once did. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So I think it's kind of one of these like off the strip casinos that Las Vegas had for, you know, and still has. Well, there was a leverage that's been lost yeah, in the right. market and we could debate what that means. We're more onto the spirit and the power of the thing. So then still pushing on my original question, which yeah. dangers are applicable? So all risks seems amplified. So all of us are like, oh, we're going to die if we don't have well pumps. Everyone get a well pump right now, right? Like uh, which are the real dangers or said another way, kind of as I think you were saying this, which are the actual wars that are coming? Uh, yeah. Information war is already here. That That's the war that's already here is yeah. information. And then you're suggesting before that one, there was a financial war going on and the information war has just kind of been hijacked now for the sake of that financial war. I think the information war has always been going on. And I agree with Darren Beatty, who runs Revolver News, that um, the United States is actually better at producing propaganda than anything else. And that the significance, so Beatty, Beatty doesn't, you know, think the moon landing was a hoax. But for him, the significance of the theories surrounding the moon landing is that what everyone recognizes is that, you know, we may or may not have gotten to the moon. I, I mean, I think we did. He thinks we did. We may or may not. But the real significance of that for him is nobody doubts that we were capable of faking it. Right. right. And so so I think that the I think that we the information war is the thing that we've always been best at. Yeah. Uh, which is why, although our exports of all kinds have declined and we have, we have outsourced lots of things, you know, film production continues, TV production continues, Netflix continues, and that we will continue to be good at, like, we are uniquely good at propaganda in the same way that the Romans were really, really good at building roads, yeah. uh, even in foreign countries. Yeah, you will be assimilated so I think that 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 is a way to talking about surveillance as we're going to do today, because I think that when you bring up a question like, do we need, do we all need to get our own you know water source right now or whatever? I think that a lot of that thinking is kind of it's on the way to something else. And there are other things that you need to think about beforehand, because the situation that we're in is not precisely like everything just disappears right away, which right. was sort of the scenario that preppers traditionally envisioned from about significantly the 1970s onward. Can, can I just we, throw a metaphor in and see if it, if it hits? It's yeah, going to sure. be significantly more like the zombie plague. 
in the terms of not right away, but think once that's happened, you still have a lot of resources. You still have people. You just have some people who are going to take and you have other people who can take and they come in and take away from the smaller groups, right? That increasingly that will happen, but it may not happen, say, with yeah. knives and, and uh, uh, shotguns. It's going to be with like lawyers <laughs> and, and information. Uh, it's going to be with uh, the feds, uh, you know, and, and the world that we've talked about this already, the world that you're living in where you are may or may not have anything to do with the federal narrative. It may not, but the feds will come in and flex their muscle if they need to for their reasons. So it, it what I see when I watch those dystopic things about the, the zombie world, it's not the zombies turning around eating each other. It's not all the dead bodies. It's the way that authority is exercised uh, that I think is, is already here. If you can see, again, uh, if you're plugged in to the narrative right now and just listening, you're the zombies too. So you're the zombies. You're running around. You're just eating what you can. Uh, and uh, the world is kind of falling apart around us and they don't even notice it. And then you have those of us who've got to survive in some way, find some real food and build uh, without shooting the zombies. You can't, you can't. (laughs) It's a little little tougher, actually, if you follow the metaphor all the way through. I think think that what we are beginning to live through, and I'm tracking this from lots of different, things, including demands for reparations and and money for farmers, but really only black farmers, is that we are beginning to live through a process, despite the fact that whites are still a majority of the United States population, absolutely, and a vast majority in most states, just not California, you know, New York, etc. We're beginning to live through a process that is very much like decolonization. And the problem there is that most people have no acquaintance with the 20th century in Rhodesia or South Africa or Angola Mm. or even Kenya, countries that had white settler populations that essentially built infrastructure and produced a certain standard of living not enjoyed by, say, Botswana. Mm -hmm. So what you're dealing with is a kind of wind down from a productive capacity that we don't have or that we will, in this case, like punish. And wind downs don't all involve everything falling apart all at once. And suddenly, like I was saying, like sort of the prepper fantasies from the 70s down through roughly like the end of Ron Paul type stuff, that wind down is not everything all at once just collapses. And suddenly we're all, you know, riding horses or at least using horses for farm work. It involves completely heterogeneous but new social formations. It's why some of the stuff that caste um, system, caste system, right? I don't, I, I, I don't necessarily think so. Okay. Because a caste system, if you look at it as like a colonial structure or an economic structure or both relies on a certain stability or coherence, right? So like um, the Spanish colonies had caste systems generally on the basis of genetics or visible genetics, at least parentage, right? And, but that relies on, okay, you're not going to go somewhere and then prove your worth despite the fact that you're half Indian or a quarter white or three quarters black in a new setting. Because in a new setting, under freer conditions, you could have a new social and thus political formation. I think a caste system relies on stability. I see. And that's why I think surveillance is generally increasing in our society. Because it's, 
in a society where so many people are so unhappy, both with themselves and with each other, you have to keep an eye on them <laughs> in order to get things out of them. Huh. So, so if you, so is, it, yeah, is, it a, is it a tribal you're talking about the groupings is what I is why I latched into there. Mm -hmm. So these are rising of groups. It's a tribalism then, if not a caste system, correct? I, I think it, for certain purposes, yes. Like I've said before, I don't actually think that our regime sincerely, like in its heart of hearts, wants to, you know, celebrate black women in every realm of life. Right. I think it's useful in the same sense that racial politics have always been useful in the United States to people who want to propagate this or that system. They're useful. They will go away as they have largely with a once dominant, but now relatively negligible black caucus in California politics as demographics change. Mm -hmm. You don't need and a black caucus when you become the majority. Right. And it's unstable because if you look at say, say compare politics in New Mexico versus Florida, which has a rising Hispanic population, but it's a different configuration from Latin America and thus has a different political configuration. That stuff is going to change. I think that goals like surveillance, tracking your movements, things that China is able to do to very different political ends, those are things that our regime wants because they're much more economically useful, whoever you end up having inside right. your city or well, maybe your that's why the path to it has has and is through uh employment so that it's people's uh corporations and their constituencies uh yeah. that will influence whether or not you're being surveilled already right right and so i mean the 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 thing that kind of sparked my thinking for this week is the a really sad article i read about call center workers who don't you know go to a physical call center and how their employers will monitor even whether there is too much, quote, noise from one of their family members talking to them while they're, you know, doing their 12 seconds between making phone calls. <laughs> and that is a certain just absolute misery in life, total control over your life and your time. That is not unprecedented by any means. But especially the idea that being at home or working from home, I think that a lot of that sounds really great. And there's a sense in which it is great. On the other hand, what it ultimately, once they figure out how to do this, if they haven't already for your particular job, what that does is that simply allows you to save time so that you can work, as many people have said they have over the past year, you can work more because <laughs> you don't have to commute. You don't have to socialize. You don't have to go talk right. to your buddy right. for 10 minutes about football. Right. You can just stay on the job. Right. And get a lot more done. Yeah. Yeah. Which the idea of working from home as pitched in uh, entrepreneurial world is that you would then do the work in the four hours instead of the eight that everyone else is taking while they talk at the water cooler and then right. spend the time on life. Right. But that's not what it is when you're being monitored for radio silence between calls, trying to fit in more calls. <laughs> right. Since you were good this week, we'll add lashes because right. you're going to get better next week. Yikes. <laughs> I right. worked in a call yeah. center, man. And I, I worked in a call I center like that. Golly, it does. Mm. Yeah, mm. it's it's no good. And and it, it also that that model we're we're moving into an economic model that will probably work extremely well for certain personalities. 
but it's very different from how we are still officially set up because things like 401ks or 403bs in the nonprofit sector, things like social security or any notion of any sort of comprehensive health insurance, whether government sponsored or otherwise, those relics of the 20th century all presume that most people probably won't figure things out for themselves, but simultaneously deserve some modicum of care, hmm. which we will all collectively assume a burden to offer. Right. That that implies there's such a thing as an elite group of people with elite minds and abilities that would see this and then use their elite position to sacrifice their own benefit for the benefit of the whole. Yes. That exactly. that's a fascinating yeah. idea. If I was ever tried <laughs> it. it. It is. And and I think I've referenced it several times, but if you go to, you know, the chapel at Princeton or some New England boarding school, you're going to find a lot more names signed up and memorialized for the Second World War than anything after it. Yeah. Um, because there there was a very different time, but it's the time when Social Security and a lot of these sorts of programs got started. And it's that generation that passed Medicare and Medicaid in the 60s that assumed that they had some duty to care and the society at large had some duty to care for the less fortunate or just in really kind of simple terms, people who probably weren't going to be able to make enough or think far enough ahead to save enough to live on retirement and blah, 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 blah. Well, it's so interesting though. It's like, so what they are is assuming a future they can predict and attempting to fulfill the role of like, well, either mother nature or God, you fill in the blank of, of meeting the needs of the universe at that time without reckoning how much humans change over 40 years, even individually, let alone corporately. So that you put in place these things for a universe that practically doesn't exist right now. And then that's again, okay, so what exists right now? Medicare, sure, it's there, but let's get back to surveillance. Yeah. Uh, and what, I mean, why, why would I need a career and a retirement plan since I have Social Security? Oh, wait, no, 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 no. See, it's no good. I, so you know, all these things that, they, that we are trying to build on, they're self-evidently collapsing, but now we're building something new. And that is, again, this surveillance mind or surveillance availability. I don't know who gets all this information. I know there's like a thing being right. built out in Arizona where Verizon's housing like you know, warehouses of computers to store information. You know, I, I don't know who's doing all this. They got a lot of money. They got a lot, yeah. a lot, a lot, a lot of money and they can do things I can't even imagine. Right. Um, so I w I'd rather just throw it at you now. What's your take on this? Because you've got this for a reason. I'm scared yeah. to death of surveillance. But then again, you know, I think the robots are filled with, you know, demonic something or other in the Matrix and something, something. You, you talk. So I think the surveillance um, and I, again, I think China is a model for many of our Western regimes. They wish that they could implement those things now is that in terms of surveillance, China is able to keep tabs on people's movements much better than certainly historically and even contemporarily we do in the West. So facial recognition software, GPS tracking, lots of things, and including currency, which I'll talk about in a second, they have a lot, they have a much greater capacity to know where people are and what they've been up to. And that is, I guess, quote, neutral technologically speaking, you could put that to all sorts of purposes, right? You could find out where your kids are on a Friday night, I guess. But the point here is that 
what surveillance enables is not to say, okay, you're going to go to a job and the government's not going to know where you are, but you're going to send in taxes every so often and everyone's going to send in taxes every so often. And then when you're old, the government's not going to know exactly, you know, where you are at 3 p.m. on a Thursday, but it will assume some responsibility to send you some kind of supplementary income in your old age. We're moving now to a model where I don't think people are going to stop retiring, but I do think that the model is going to be much more up to date and constant. And I think that currency is going to be one key way in doing this, but we're going to shift from idea of sort of interdependence to an idea of more total dependence where my both economic productivity for the sake of my employer, that I'm not talking too much between calls, not wasting time, but also what is openly called in China, but what if you, you know, get kicked out of law school or whatever for saying the wrong words is not yet openly called in the United States would be social credit mm -hmm. where you have the wrong ideas. You have said uh, unhelpful or ideologically incorrect things, and therefore you will suffer. So in the same sense that in the Soviet union, you know, people that the regime knew were pastors were paid less than bricklayers you will be demoted for certain things. And I think that as a long-term curb on people's behavior, the threat of ongoing penalties is in its way far worse for people and therefore much more of a deterrent than the idea that if they say or think the wrong thing, they might get put into some sort of exciting martyrdom situation. Right. Some people might actually want that. But if you say, well, we're not going to kill you, we're just going to make your life sort of grinding and miserable, then your children probably won't want to do what you do. And you'll, you might not want to do or think what you do or think. Right. It, it, it is overwhelming. How does one survive? I think I said. Right. Huh? And playing into that is a change. I'm happy to talk about Bitcoin on its own or, or Ethereum or something some other time, but the technology uh, behind cryptocurrencies is beginning to be used. And again, I think China is out front on this, but you know, the treasury department here in the United States is currently working with folks at MIT to do something similar. Facebook's doing something too with somebody somewhere. Or something. Yeah. Dark, and dark, that is, darkness. that is to, <laughs> um, to, to, to move to digital currency using blockchain. Mm. But what this would mean is that all the sort of infrastructure that moves money between accounts or even sometimes still physically moves dollars and coins out of someone's pocket into someone else's cash register, that could go away. It doesn't have to be there if you have a central bank administered directly digital currency. And via social credit. Yeah. And so a, a digital dollar could just be administered directly from the Fed to your bank account. Totally. I mean, you forget that, man. I'm I'm special. I get what I want where I go because I got my thumbprint and you don't get to go there because you don't. You got your thumbprint. Yeah, you're not. I said the right stuff in the right places and born the right way. And you're not. Welcome to you, the old. Yeah, world. you got and you got vaccinated. So, you know, you get to right. go where you want. So <laughs> we haven't even pulled that one in. So blockchain <laughs> and cryptocurrency is an old hack of mine, not directly and haha, -ha, but uh, it, it is fascinating and understanding 
how far ahead the hackers are on creating the blockchain so as to avoid government oppression. And yet the government's very quickly realizing, you know, we can't let this thing go. We have to have our own to to fight it. I don't think they'll end up fighting it. I think, uh, you know, the the free blockchain will live for these reasons. Uh, And yet being aware of what that will do to the common person who is unwilling to believe in such a thing as cryptocurrency, you know, right. they, they're not going to tell you they've done all this by the time yep. it's all over. I mean, they're not going to tell you that, no. or, or, or they will have like, uh, they will have brought you along. So the same way you're willing to go get DNA work done on your, on your vaccine. Now you'll be ready to go to crypto when you wouldn't right now. Cause it's scary. Cause it's called crypto or something. So, yeah, and, it, and, it, and you're right. And the phrase, the common person is so key here mm-hmm. because like a lot of things, it's not, it's not for instance, like, you know, the, the federal government actually has the capacity to just abolish the favorable secrecy laws involved in finance that South Dakota has or corporate corporate law that Delaware and Nevada have. They can't just, they don't actually control everything. Nobody controls everything. Swiss bank accounts, Panamanian bank accounts, those are still pretty good to go if you want secrecy. The issue here is what life is like for the common person. Mm -hmm. Because if you're willing and you have some kind of energy, if you're willing to do some financial self-education, you can be relatively well-prepared for the future. They're not going to sell a digital dollar or digital yuan or digital whatever as cryptocurrency. You have to get a wallet. You have to get this. They're not going to make it that hard. Right. 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 It's just going to be the way life works. And maybe they'll do some messaging like coins and physical paper money is disgusting. And there will be a Newsweek story about how many germs are on the average five dollar bill. And that will gradually convince people that it's unsanitary. Right. Or something. Right. That's what they'll do. They won't say this is based on hard technology. They don't do that with smartphones. So they're not going to do it with digital currency either. But what digital currency enables is simply this, a much, much better sense of what you're doing and what you care about, because it's a much, it will be a much better measure of what you're investing in. And if unlike Bitcoin, it's not anonymous, then it will be much easier to understand what you're interested in, what you're spending money on. And also potentially it will make asset seizure and control much easier for the currency issuer. Right. It's just going to, in my mind, it's just going to congeal what they're already able to do. I mean, they track phone calls, right? They track the credit card information and know is available. So, and if not, I mean, it's available by companies that track it to sell you more stuff and they sell it to whoever wants the information. So, you know, the government, whether they're buying or not, you decide. They right. have enough money to buy it from the people that are selling it to everybody else. So, right. Uh, so that's already going on. What you're talking about now is finding a way to really streamline it so that the control becomes monolithic. Uh, yeah. 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 A lot simpler. And I mean, if this makes any sense to you, like in this case, like you're actually on the side of Visa and Wall Street because, <laughs> right, because they have some interest in keeping the entire payment processing infrastructure in place too. Dare I say you're on the side of Andrew Jackson then, right? I mean, you're really, you're way back at that moment, recognizing that the bank, the bank is the thing that'll eat the country at right. some point, right? Correct. 
Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So and I, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you continue. I was going to ask another question. You know, so I I think I think that again, this is all relatively ideologically neutral. It also presume something that I said earlier, I don't think is going to exist in the same sense that I don't think modern America could build a Hoover Dam, certainly is not going to build the high speed rail network people speculate about. We just don't have the wherewithal, the capacity, the political will. Similarly, I do not know how much control America will be able to exercise over payments and bank transfers and stuff, because you're already entering a time, right? So let's say that you're holding stuff in Bitcoin. You're entering a time in which you could convert that into, let's say, rubles or some other currency whose issuer, Russia, China is trying to do something, is is already or is attempting to opt out of the payments transfer system erected by the United States after the Second World War that has generally predominated. So, and this is probably complexity that deserves its own time, but the point being that you're looking at a future in which, yes, they're trying to claim control over you, but they understand they don't have it. It's aspirationally monolithic. Propagationally. Propagandationally? Propagandationally. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, it it. It is trying to maintain control. And you see this even with, you know, coronavirus enforcement of all the dumb things, right? If, a, if enough people decide not to do something and decide to do something else, that escalates the investment that the regime at whatever level has to make to get its will enforced. It's just too much work. Right. And so, you know, in the same sense that you can recognize okay, you know, Trump didn't start any new wars. That was pretty unusual. Probably that that won't continue. We'll probably get in somewhere soon uh, in some way. But you can recognize the United States is much more interested in, you know, influencing public opinion in a lot of places through flying transgender flags in front of, you know, the American embassy and whatever stand than it is in boots on the ground. Because I think, I think we all recognize something is winding down here. And we all recognize we don't we I mean, not all of us recognize that. So I think that the great that's danger, yeah, the, great da the great danger for the common person is that the common person, by no fault of his own, is set up with a human nature that generally makes decisions on the basis of what he has previously experienced as normal. So <laughs> in, a, in, 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 in a situation of rapid change of all kinds, right? So in the last five months, for instance, we've gone from a military in which we don't pay for sexual reassignment surgery to a military in which that's free, okay? And um, we're going to do pregnancy flight suits too, right? Things can change rapidly because we are so ideologically unstable, if in that time you're still thinking, you know, hey, it still kind of feels like 1998 in my life, then the difficulty you're going to have is just that 1998 wasn't only, you know, what, 23 years ago. 1998 seems functionally like it was 
800 years so, ago. Well, what everyone thought was going to happen in 1999 to 2000, it happened last year, basically. Like, like the shift of the millennium spirit was just a little behind. Uh, just a little uh, behind, okay. right? Yeah. We're all going to party like it's 1999. It's all going to be changed, end of the world, whatever. Yeah, kind of, maybe. <laughs> all, all universe. I mean, I got. I, yeah. I had someone talk to me about a... The, the Mayan calendar that ended in 2012 really ended the world, and now we're on an all-universe. Like, like Lost? Like the TV show Lost, huh? It's just like that. And it, that's not what I'm talking about. But there is a, uh, a readily observable soul of the United States gasping for breath, and anyone mm-hmm. who wants to put their nose in the air can smell its refuse at the moment, yeah. right? Yeah. But there's right. a lot of common people who don't smell it. And I think where you were getting to a little bit here is that it's because of normalcy bias, because they've been led right. to this, right? So you want to go right. into that a little bit? Yeah, because so you can still drive across rural Indiana and you see billboards and they're kind of unusual for government or corporate advertising because the people on them are mainly white, which isn't really the case anymore for like an all state advertisement. But therefore, they're trying to get the the boys who live in rural Indiana to sign up for the Marines, right? The, the, the soul of a fighting nation. Okay. So the presumption there, you're playing on imagery, which still appeals, I, I guess it's supposed to at least, although the kid probably was on some like server where someone tried to convince him he should turn into a girl. So I don't think the 14 year olds of 2021 are what the 1998, 14 year olds were, but right. probably not. Anyway, you can't the handle idea, the truth. You can't yeah, handle the truth. Idea, the idea is still we're going to populate our fighting units with increasingly ideologically unreliable but readily available rural white populations. We've talked about this before on the podcast. It is a shocking demographic fact, both the whiteness and the southernness of American combat arms. If you if you can't get those people in, suddenly because you kind of forgot that you told them they should turn into women or, or whatever else you've been telling them, whatever other messaging they've gotten. If you can't get them in, who are you going to get to go in? Are you going to get second generation Vietnamese immigrant? Does he feel the same way about the Marine Corps? Why does he want to be there? You have a lot of unstable and uncertain situations. New formations of power and appeal could form. But the normalcy bias that I see for the common person is simply thinking that what he understood as normal, both ideologically, but also increasingly economically five years ago, just is not going to be the case in the future. And that 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 speed of change is not necessarily bad, because the thing that I am very hopeful about is that when rapid change occurs, that is unstable for everybody. That unless you sincerely believe that our regime or your ideological opponents are actually omniscient and omnipotent, that is that they are in some way divine, unless you sincerely believe that, there are all kinds of openings available. We've mentioned Bitcoin earlier, none of which, including Bitcoin, is comprehensive. Like just this one weird, right? It's like this one weird trick and you'll be free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, there's nothing like that. It's it's long and it's difficult and it's multifarious. But freedom is on offer whenever there is instability. So, you know, 
the cast system I'm saying, however that shapes up, is something that's going to require in some measure your consent, right? You're, you're going to have to decide after they get on your case for taking 12 seconds between calls, you have to decide to keep working that job with its low risk stability and the automatic deposits of slave wages that they're giving you to keep your streaming services. If you decide not to keep opting into that, life is much less predictable, but it could also be free. How free will this leave me? <laughs> I don't know, you know, but I think that that is, that is the question that increasingly you will have to ask yourself. And that, that is a massive change pretty much for everybody raised in the United States of any race, tax bracket, anything, because the presumption over many decades, many recent decades, let's just say living memory, is that this is a free country. <laughs> okay. So that means that I'm operating on a basis of freedom. I'm not operating on a basis necessarily of being wealthy or being good looking or being whatever other things I'd like to be, but I can presume freedom. So I can think of Romania or Russia or China, and I presume they're less free in their daily life than I am. That's, that's what I'm kind of questioning now. You know, how can we presume that? How can the listener presume that? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know why the listener, if the listener is our listener, I don't know why the listener would anymore. They probably don't. But they're, they're, also, <laughs> they're also people coming in too. And we, we yeah, also, right. we, we've talked about fragmentation and all this. So it's not, it's apples to oranges. But, you know, you brought up that question on, on your notes for a reason. The new criterion for life is to figure out how free it will leave you. Right. And then plug the holes there. Let me let me ask if if this kind of gets at it. It's maybe completely different, but sure. Recently, I've kind of realized I ha I want to make every decision with two things in mind. One is that I'm planning for the world to end tomorrow, and as a Christian, this is good news for me. It'll all be gone. Okay, so I'm expecting to not have to worry about fifty years from now, thirty years from now, twenty years mm -hmm. from now, next week. Except for that, I'm also entirely planning for the world to be here 2,000 years from now. That's also a possibility. It's a very real possibility mm -hmm. to me. Those are my two options. <clears throat> mm -hmm. But I want to make all the decisions with either that 2,000-year game plan or that tomorrow game plan, and less with the next week game plan in mind. Does that make sense? Trying to see the perspective of the world where how free am I? What decisions do I need to make? I need to make less decisions. I need to be where I am. And then if I'm going to change, change to the things that matter 100 years from now, 500 years from now, 2,000 years from now, not to the things yeah. that are going to put out a fire. Right. Uh, yeah. So I, I would say decisions are, decisions are good and decisions have to be made. But decisions that free men make generally are made at a certain time with a certain amount of deliberation, but then have effects perhaps the rest of their life, at least for a long time but maybe even into their children's and grandchildren's lifetimes, right? Decisions that slaves make are only ever impulsive, quick, and unless you're opting for freedom, they are of small and very temporary value because your decisions are very small scale. Am I going to watch Hulu or Netflix? <laughs> it's not, am I going to save this amount over the next three years so that I can do this in year five? Right. So decision-making, I think, is just part of being alive, but 
the nature of decisions that we have been conditioned by our socioeconomic environment to make are generally slave decisions. What do you want off the menu? What color car do you want to buy? You know, how many streaming services do you subscribe to? They're not really productive decisions. You generally, in fact, just in a strictly financial sense, you generally only make decisions and are conditioned to make decisions about things that technically speaking are, are liabilities. They decrease in value. Your meal is less valuable as soon as you start eating it, you know, economically than before you made that decision. Yeah, your car yeah. is less valuable as soon as it comes off the lot. So you're good at making decisions about things that are liabilities to everybody, especially you. You're not as good and you certainly haven't been trained unless you're very unusual. You have not been trained at making decisions that would produce long-term assets, either financially speaking, or let's say even spiritually speaking. Right. You're certainly not used to seeing your children as the primary long-term asset. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and beneficiary yep. that your, your decisions about streaming services affect them, not just what they're going to watch or not, but also where, you know, that $50 this month is actually going to get used. Well, and your children are the one place where you do have decision-making power. And if you teach them that the only decisions to make are slave decisions, those are the decisions they will make. Yep. So if you want to exercise decision-making somewhere else, spend more time talking to your kids, then well, playing the game, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Whichever game it might right. be, which gets back right. to it's either today, it's good enough today, or 2,000 years from now. In both cases, a conversation with my son is probably the best decision. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? right. Uh, and right. and uh, th again, that's not a bullet point. That's not a checklist. It can't be. This is, That's what you're getting at earlier. You're not going to yeah. find the golden pill here, but there is uh, a different mindset. There's a different mindset. Um, it will bring its share of suffering, I think. Yeah. But, that's where, let me give one caveat, you know, don't sell the house and move to Montana to live by yourself in the woods just on a whim, right? Like, like <laughs> that is a five-year plan and it involves yeah, the first right. year in a library, reading about it, lots, right? So right. like, don't hear what we're saying as, as cavalier, uh, it, it is long game. Uh, but then, so do you want to say about opting out of job choice? I mean, I'm not sure what that, I, we, I don't know if we covered that note, I want to make sure we get that. Yeah, yeah, I think... I, I think just to kind of, you know, bookend the the discussion of currency is that you you have to get some kind of currency in some way in order to live. The issue here is that the job is not valuable simply because of the amount of currency. And I think people understand that on a psychological level. I just don't think that they have had to necessarily make the connection before between the currency amount you know, the salary, the benefits, et cetera, that, that value and the psychology. But I think increasingly, so if the kid sees the billboard, wants the signing bonus, says he wants to be the soul of a fighting nation, he's going to go in there. He's going to get a bunch of money right away. He'll probably blow it on a motorcycle or a new pickup truck right outside his base where he gets stationed. But psychologically, not only could he have to go die in a foreign country for no particular reason, he's also going to be subjected to all kinds of uh, ideological training, at least, uh, unless we, whatever, elect Ron DeSantis or something, and then it'll change for four years, and then it'll go back to whatever, right? But the, the cost here of the job is also a reorientation, because I find that a lot of people have a kind of slave mentality about how they make money in life. That is, they favor security over all other things. 
and I cannot blame them, but I must call it a slave mentality because it means that you are sacrificing everything to the stability that you currently enjoy. And you may have a reason for that. You may have many reasons, but the question you have to ask yourself is how long can I do that? <laughs> and while I do that, what is that doing to my spirit? What is that doing to my family? And what will I actually find valuable if I begin to think long-term? It might be something very different than if I just think in terms of my bank account over the next six to 12 to 18 months. And, and let me suggest, so when I talk about millennial shifts and the spirit of the age moving, like the big shift is I think you're going to, you, we are noticing, we are corporately noticing the drain on our spirits. Oh yeah. That yeah. It, it, just, it just came. Yeah. yeah it just came. On some level. And we all yeah. see it now on a, like a visceral level. Whereas before yeah. I think we were like, I'll just watch more Netflix and I'll feel better later, you know? And, <laughs> and like, so we've all just kind of gone through that hurdle. Yeah. Except for that. We all haven't. I said all now too. It's now you did it earlier. I did it now here. <laughs> this is where the zombie metaphor from earlier, even though I don't think you're going to be run around, you know, trying to break into people's cars. The more you can see that we we're in a zombie apocalypse already. It is a propaganda brainwashing uh, there are people the slave wages you're talking about they're just they're eating for their belly they're just trying to survive today they can't think farther than that the mm -hmm. moment you think farther than that you've you've stopped being a zombie uh, you, mm -hmm. you can see so mm -hmm. the question then is you know how do you begin surviving in that zombie apocalypse so what are the steps yeah. you take to extricate yourself from the daily dose of the food that keeps you a zombie right because right. sometimes right. you got to go in and watch that stuff or deal with that stuff just because that's again the, the job uh, one of my my buddies to share with me, you know, trying to work on his time scheduling a little bit, and mm -hmm. you know, how he feels about time and and his work environment just won't allow it. You know, he, he just can't change the way he looks at stress related to the clock because he has to go do it every day. You know, right. and right. but that's just exactly where. So how does he or how do I think? Okay, I don't like this. I don't want it to be this way. But it's not going to change tomorrow. It's not going to change next week. No. But it could change in a year, maybe. Right. It definitely could change in five. Right. So why don't I like step back and like, for me, pray about it. And then, you know, put into practice some of those long game solutions again. I'd call that a 2000 year plan. Then. Right. But yeah. And I, and I think even if you realize like, okay, I live in slave quarters, like the bank owns the house, the bank owns the car, you know, all this sort of thing. Even if you realize that just the sense that you are planning for something other than this hmm. is very powerful. Because it gives you a sense of control and direction and purpose in your daily life that a lot of people don't have. I think that's why they take as many different forms of sedatives as most of us do. Purposed for more than gluttony. Through media, through food, through yeah, pharmaceuticals. Right. Right. Those, those are ways to basically allow your eyes to close so you don't look at the hellscape. Mm-hmm. The idea that you have some other plan, that you are going somewhere, and it doesn't, none of this has to be sort of like aspirational rapper lifestyle stuff. Like, you don't, you don't have to become filthy rich. A sense of purpose exists, even if it just means that one day you will be turning wrenches for yourself instead of for the, you know, Jiffy Lube franchise you currently wow, work for. Turning wrenches for yourself with your son. Golly. I mean, Whatever it means, right? And it may right. not, maybe, yeah. maybe it's your son will have the opportunity to do it with his son and he'll see right. the value. That alone, you know, and there's, so there's more than one front on this. You're talking about, you know, debt to the bank and the actual home uh, versus 
debt to the educational system and how much my children have to learn from the world. And there's some level at which that happens uh, and right. engaging that. So there's a lot of different fronts to the war. What else? Did we miss anything that you wanted to cover today? Yeah, just strictly in financial terms regarding currency, this does have to do, and the guy that I found extremely helpful on these questions, both what do I pour my time, my energy, but also my my actual currency into as far as investment in the narrow sense of that word, but just in long-term sense, has been Robert Kiyosaki. So Japanese name, so easy to spell. But if you look up rich dad, poor dad, he's got a ton of stuff. He's got a lot of helpers. He's got a really interesting podcast. And his insight is basically that our tax system incentivizes long-term thinking. Mm -hmm. It's just that a lot of people have never been taught anything about finances. They were simply taught how to get a specific kind of job and then to be consumers with the currency earned at that job. Right, right. So that has to do with, he. if you look into him, he'll recommend things like investment in commodities, gold, silver, also Bitcoin, rather than simply trying to work that much harder to get that much more so that you can get taxed at the absolute highest rate, which would be personal income tax. So that's that's something to consider when you're thinking about currency and control and also investment in things that long-term, like land, are valuable mm-hmm. and less in, you know, how does my boss feel about me today? And did I cut down my downtime between calls? So on the house and the debt on that regard, like mm-hmm. it's indentured servitude rather than slavery. So there is that, like you can, you can pay off right. the debt to yeah. the house. I mean, the taxes yeah. will still be there. So yeah. and go ahead. he has a, he has a distinction between good debt and bad debt. That is debt incurred through investment in things that long-term are assets, such mm-hmm. as land mm-hmm. or a house uh, versus the things that a lot of people get into debt on are, are, as I was saying earlier, strictly speaking, just liabilities, cars, clothing, other forms of consumption that aren't going to do anything even for you in two years or not what they can now. Certainly not for your children or grandchildren. Yeah, everything that perishes with its use. Yep. On the currency issue, um, so Robert Kiyosaki, Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Tony Robbins' book, of all people, Tony Robbins, Unshakable, is an excellent primer on finances. You get a little bit of his pep talk in it, but it's mostly yeah. uh, a head to top. And he doesn't get into Bitcoin. He'll leave that one off. But just about everything sure. else and you know diversification, if you got to say it in a word, you want to diversify. Uh, there is no golden nugget to all of this. Uh, there, this is where the remembering tomorrow could just go away is a pretty key point of the wisdom in all of this, uh, whether it's going away because Jesus returns or it's going away because who knows a nuclear war and it all changes. Mm -hmm. Um, living with that understanding of these investments is as important, uh, as the entire thing that these are partial things you're doing as an awareness of your present situation, uh, realizing that the future is completely unpredictable, black swan style, and yet you got to do something today. Real things are real and digital things are, well, they're energy and they do cost spirit. That's true. It's true. It's interesting. I don't know, but, but real is real. And so if you want to start making uh, inroads or outroads from where you are, that you feel trapped, focus on that near real thing. Do that, be that, find that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that we, we have been talking about children and grandchildren. I also think that there is a way of economic being that would derisively be called by, you know, a microeconomist, 
barter as if it's like inferior to money, but it is sort of natural and uh, trading and gifts are natural within not only family groups, but also friendship groups. Mm -hmm. Something about surveillance is that the surveillance is of you and it's necessarily isolating, right? They're trying to find out who you are, uh, where you have spent your money, what you said on the internet seven years ago under a username traceable to your you know, IP address, right? <laughs> uh, they, they are isolating you and they want you to think of yourself and your economic decisions, your financial decisions, your spiritual decisions as decisions for and about you and your benefit. And the reorientation here is not just, you know, what asset classes are you invested in, but it's also why are you doing what you're doing on a daily basis? It's not only for your family and it doesn't have to be alone. Yeah. The whole gig economy thing, the evangelism surrounding gig economy is of maximizing personal productivity, which is I'm not against personal productivity. If anyone knows me, I like productivity, but the productivity on its own is, is morally neutral and could be very bad because it, it could just increase enormous arrogance. I'm the Nazis just... were fairly productive. <laughs> they were, and it was bad. It was really bad. Um, so so the, the thing here is like, you know, okay, you want to build a business around product X service Y that's, that's great. Why don't you get other people that you already know and trust and maybe even love involved? And yeah, that's going to be hard, but it's also going to be good and upbuilding and strengthening in many ways if you are any judge of any kind of people's character and capacities. And that also means that your, your economic decision-making is conditioned toward the good of a group rather than simply your own good. Because that is a bond over which the regime doesn't really have control. The regime really has no control about how I feel about my friend or what I would do for my friend and his family. It really, it doesn't have any control over that. It could say, you're not allowed to travel to visit your friend, but it can't forbid me to send him currency or to give him any kind of aid I possibly can. It really can't do that. Wow. So it was amazing. So you're describing how the inner life is the thing that the regime cannot control. And yet we're also talking about how the gig economy, the hyper productivity, the you being alone, pursuing a better you, increasingly a disembodied you, productive <laughs> in digital realities. Yeah. That, you that individually, could... not plural. We've moved from community and family to isolated batteries. And I mentioned the Matrix once already. So- just saying. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you think if you think about, I mean, I, this is why I think transgenderism is is so oh, paradigmatic. Yeah, you're right. Because what it means is that instead of investing my time, like I just, you know, my mom told me, my dad told me, you're a boy. Okay, I'm a boy. Let's go do boy things. Then we'll do. Then I'll be a man. I'll do man things, and and then I can just go and like live a life that is productive for the sake of other people. Instead. I invest all kinds of energy, including your energy in, you could say tritely recognizing my mental illness, but kind of on a deeper level, devoting your energy 
and, and mine and your money and mine, if I'm a Defense Department employee, for instance, your money to fixing what I think is wrong with me. Yeah, you're corporatizing your mental illness. Is yeah, what you're doing. yeah. And so this is why I think transgenderism <laughs> is is paradigmatic of a lot of other things that yeah. have been going on for a very long time. And that, you know, this is probably where we're going to go next time, because I think transgenderism as a paradigm is there because so many things, ideological, economic, social, media, come together in the idea that the the paradigmatic example of our society is someone who is not something trying to become something else and requiring everyone else to invest energy and emotion and ideological assent to it. An overcomer attempting to overcome the impossible. And that's right. And telling yep, everyone else, right. you got to tell me I can. Yeah, uh, Emperor's new, new clothes. I don't know. Dorothy in the whirlwind. Is, uh, that's Dr. Adam Kuntz. He made a lot of sense this hour. He, you can find him at Concordia Theological Sense Sense. The Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. <laughs> I'm Pastor Jonathan Fisk. I throw some sense out there with some nonsense from time to time. You can find me at St. Paul Lutheran Church of Rockford, Illinois. This is a brief history of power. Two white guys. You now know exactly where to find us.